Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hello, everybody. I'm Ulvia Jafferle, a data scientist in Italy. Although I am living in Rome, originally I am from Azerbaijan. While thinking about how long it took for me to be a tech woman in the technology world, I felt the responsibility and desire to help other women as much as I can. Therefore, I developed the TechDevop platform to support others who want to achieve in technology. Because I believe women have ability to do great things. For us, sharing, helping, developing as one is the most important value. What I would like to emphasize is just do not afraid to fail. Do not limit yourself with little success. Think bigger, learn, fail, repeat, experience, and reach the inaccessible. No matter how hard the challenge is, go for it. If not now, then when? To connect and collaborate with extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. Hey, I'm outside just getting a smog check. I was thinking about what home is and how important it is for us to develop those really connective, meaningful relationships at home. And as driven people, we get so caught up in you know getting things done in our schedule and before we know it it's the end of the year and we haven't cultivated our relationships around us we haven't taken that moment to you know eat grocery store sushi with a friend and it's so important that we really do become more mindful of how we're living day to day instead of just getting caught caught up and each year going you know into the next and into the next and And we don't, you know, further enhance our relationships around us because at the end of the day, it's our private relationships that really nourish our lives. It's not the likes or the follows or the social media engagement, professional accolades. It's our personal relationships behind closed doors in privacy that really make our lives a wonderful place. So with that, enjoy the next episode. women in tech around the world. Today, we have a special edition episode, something I am so excited about. There are these guys that I completely trust and respect, these businessmen around the world, and I invited them to be on the Women in Tech podcast to discuss financial self-worth. I was really inspired to have the conversation about what is financial self-worth, how do men from Mars think about it differently than us from Venus, and I thought it'd be an amazing, amazing conversation and discussion to have so we could get a little insight on how to value ourselves just a little bit more. So I'd like to welcome, we have Andrew, Zach, and Kay with us today. Andrew, go ahead, say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hey, I'm Andrew Nalband. Uh, I'm the founder of Thunk. We have a note-taking app that helps you connect your ideas and publish to Twitter. And we have a workshop that helps you apply startup techniques to writing and publish more on Twitter as well. Amazing. Zach? My name is Zach Hanavar. I'm the founder of a management company called One Day Entertainment, where we help creators on platforms like YouTube and TikTok uh, grow their channels and and build businesses around their channels that they can have long-term. Originally from Toronto, but now living in L.A., NK. 
Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kehi. I'm the founder of Rad Reads, which is a newsletter, blog, and an online learning community. I teach a course called Supercharge Your Productivity, which teaches you how to live a productive and examined life. And I'm so excited. Okay, so we all know about business, all of us women listening right now, me, we know about business and we know how sometimes business is not necessarily run with integrity. So what I respect about these guys is they are integrity driven businessmen who also financially value themselves. And I think that's really an interesting topic because so many of us feel like we can't be integrity driven and have any form of capitalism involved in that. So I'd like to kind of kick things off with something I was incredibly inspired by, which is Zach's journal entry that he posted on his Instagram story. So Zach, can you talk a little bit about that journal entry and specifically the line that you know really moved me? Sure. So I've been having a journal that I, I write in as frequent of a basis as I can for the past, I would say, six or seven years. And uh, I think the journal entry that we're referring to is from the day that I moved to Los Angeles from Toronto, which was about three and a bit years ago. And I had just moved to start up One Day Entertainment. I was managing these group of YouTube creators called Yes Theory, um, who I still work with, but at the time was very new to. And uh, that day was the day that I moved. It was also the day that Will Smith had responded to do a collaboration with them. So it was a very uh, emotionally energized and packed day. And I think the line that I guess stuck out to you was that I had said that I was nervous, but also more confident than ever that things were going to work out and that I couldn't wait to spread this message to millions and millions of people across the world and make a shit ton of money in the process. <laughs> That is exactly it. I would love to think that way. As you all know, I am very vulnerable and I do not yet think that way. So I thought if I don't yet think that way, there's probably so many of you who don't think that way yet either. And so I'd like us to get there because think about the power that we would have if we could say we're going to do so much good in the world and totally value ourselves in that process that it is okay to receive in tandem. Okay, tell me a little bit about your philosophy on pricing for your cohorts. You do these cohorts. And I remember we were talking, <laughs> you were saying, oh, it's like, I know I'm undervaluing myself. And then you said it was a few thousand dollars. I was like, if only I could think I'm undervaluing myself at a few thousand dollars. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy in regards to pricing? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, selling doesn't come naturally to me. I don't like to self-promote. I don't like to ask people for money. Uh, I don't like to put a dollar value next to things. And so I've been forced to do that as, as a course creator. And so when I started, I, I basically have taken a very, I've read a lot of books on pricing and I'm more confused on pricing after reading books on pricing than I was before I read them. And so when I started, I had this philosophy, which was, I'm going to start quite low and I'm going to deliver 150% to 200% of value so that they feel like they have a good deal. And I actually, I still actually believe that. And incrementally over the past two and a half years that I've been running this course, the price has actually gone from 500 bucks per student to, we mentioned 1500 for the base level, but there's actually a $6,000 uh, tier as well. And what I'd say is along the way, like I've always held with like, what's the outcome? What would people be willing to say like, damn, I got a good deal for that outcome. But at the same time, there's always a litmus test is would I buy this at this price and feel like I got a good deal? And so once I can stick to those things, 1,500, 2,000, 6,000, 10,000, like as long as it, it clears that threshold, we'll see where it goes. But I do want to, I get massive imposter syndrome around pricing my products. And you even had examples in mind when you're pricing things of here's the financial value. You said something like, if someone signed up for my course and then they ended up saving XYZ somewhere else, it would be well worth what they paid and more. Do you remember that part of our conversation? Yeah, well, I think there's a few ways to think about it. One is that I know that when people sign up for my course and if they follow through with it, they will save a lot of time. And so if you think about the type of person that pays for a $1,500 course, if they save just like six, seven hours, period, 
you know, they've probably broken even again, depending on different different type of, uh, of wages. So that, that would be the first thing. The second thing is that I believe I know that I can help them change the way they see themselves. Right. So if you can walk into a room with confidence or you can start writing, start on that side project or have the courage to change jobs. If you change jobs from a miserable job to a job that makes you come alive, you've cleared fifteen hundred bucks by spades. Right. And so those are like the different ways that I would think about it. And then oftentimes there's just like very tangible things where like they took my course and they had an exit. Right. Like they didn't have the exit because of my course, but they'll come back and say like the principles that you taught me made me a better business person. So some little tiny sliver of that exit is attributed to our course. And, you know, Zach put me on to the, I think it was you, Zach, that put me on to a podcast with Chip, the owner of Lululemon. Was, was it you that posted about that? I, fe- I don't know. But I was listening to it and he talks about seeing every woman that comes into Lululemon as someone whose time is worth $100 an hour. So he prices and models his store accordingly to who his customer is, right? How you look at your customer and really understanding your customer intimately, then you'll know what makes sense for them to spend. Andrew, you and I had the most meaningful conversation about how we both see the world differently. And I loved how transparent and vulnerable our conversation was because we were talking about pricing during the conversation. And I would say, okay, what made you respond in that way just now? And then you'd say, okay, why do you say that just now? Why do you see the world like that? Andrew, how do you define pricing and valuing yourself? And I don't want to get into anything personal, but as much as you feel comfortable sharing, I love the different perspectives you've been able to tap into. Yeah, well, you can push me deeper if I don't do a good job right out of the gate being vulnerable. But, you know, I don't know. I think pricing is is one of these weird things. Um, It certainly can get like tied to your self-worth for sure, right? One of the things that I found really useful in the process of trying to figure this out is to like just get on the phone with a bunch of people who are potentially, well, not phone, Zoom, uh, with a bunch of people who are potentially going to take this course and just show them this landing page and to just throw a price on it. Uh, and that's been super helpful for me to just like gather feedback around what does this seem like it's worth, you know, to you. And it works a little better if you put a price on there rather than just like show them a page and ask. But I was really surprised by how the results of that were really different than what I expected they were going to be. I thought that we would see this. I think we spoke about this, but I thought we'd see this straight line from like, you know, $50 to like a few thousand dollars and just like every price point in between. And that wasn't what I saw at all. I saw like a huge cluster of people around the $100 mark and then a smaller but significant cluster of people around that like thousands of dollars mark. Uh, So there was just like this massive rift in the middle of people that nobody was saying, I want a $500 course or I want a $1,000 course. It was just like absolutely zero. And I assume that has to do with what people are comparing us two in their heads, you know, are they thinking of us as like an alternative to like a collegiate level course or some of the other things that are out there? Or are they thinking of us as an alternative to like a Skillshare or uh, Brilliantly? So it's really interesting. You know, I was really surprised by that process. And I've noticed during the course of it that I'm working with somebody on building this course and we had really different approaches to pricing and thought about it really, really differently. And I'm actually glad, you know, she ended up sort of pushing me to the lower end of the spectrum to experiment to start with. So we could kind of blow some people out of the water at first. But I'm very interested to see how that dialogue continues. I think it's very likely that I will be pushing (laughs) us into the higher realms of pricing. And uh, she will probably be less comfortable with that. So I'm interested to see how that goes. And I asked a very specific question on our call, which I'll share in just a moment. But so everybody has context. You have a deep history in startups and tech companies. Uh, You've done tremendously well. And that anchored you on valuing your self-worth. Am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, I certainly think that's true. Uh, You know, I I certainly don't have a a dearth of experience to pull from uh, when I think about, you know, valuing myself and what I bring to the table. Can you share a little bit about your background? I started my journey way back in maybe 2010. I made an iPhone app that was this goofy sort of uh, imitation razor where you would rub your microphone port on your screen and hair would fall into the window. And that thing 
seemed really silly and fun, but it went on to do about like two million installations. So that was like a crazy thing that really just like blew out, you know, my expectations of what it would do and helped me answer questions that my mom's friends would say, like, but it doesn't actually shave you. Like, why would you do it? <laughs> uh, so from there, I ended up uh, getting involved with Techstars. Uh, I was in and out of several Techstars companies in product roles, usually as an early person working on the product. I mentored there for a year or two, ran a consulting business for a little while that got sort of acquired into a crypto company. And when um, the whole financial thing went wild, uh, crypto took a hit and they decided to shut down that portion of the business. So I asked myself, you know, deeply what I really care about, what I want to do. And the answer that I came up with was, you know, help kind of creators create more. And that led to this note-taking tool where we're helping people sort of think about their ideas and share them with the world. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because, I mean, we were talking about you and your partner discussing pricing with your background and with her background. I said, I wonder if she wants the price to be lower because of financial self-worth or because it's actually smart for it to be a lower cost. And it frustrated me that I didn't know the answer to that. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, honestly, that is somewhat of my perception. I don't know what is the case or what is the truth, but it seemed as though she was having a harder time thinking about charging higher prices. And I was much more willing to just roll the dice and say, hey, let's just charge a high price for this and who cares what happens? <laughs> I just didn't really have um, a resistance, I guess, to, to doing that. And in fact, I probably had the opposite. I had uh, a lot of parts of my being and experience telling me, like, you're way underpricing this. You should really price it higher. And, you know, it kind of kind of came down to I needed her to work with me. You know, we don't need that to immediately be financially successful out of the gate. We just need to prove that someone can have a great experience with us and get some of those great early testimonials. And we can build off of that later. That's the way harder you know, part of everything is just delivering an, a wow experience to somebody, you know, and, and that'll be uh, enough of a challenge. And we talked about my wife a little bit. So she has a business and, you know, we were in the early parts of that business. So she does uh, nail art. So she does this like very intricate, like hand painted, you know, like flowers and, you know, tigers on your nail and all this kind of stuff. I'd love to give her a shout out if she'd be comfortable, but I don't want to also put her on blast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. She's uh, she's the nail art babe on Instagram, um, and she does really awesome, beautiful work. She's uh, she's grown that little Instagram account to about twenty thousand followers, and she's managed to accumulate this four hundred person wait list. And so we had this conversation about that where. I said, you know, sweetheart, I love you. Um, but if you have a 400 person wait list, you probably could charge more, you know, for what you're doing. And that <laughs> led to some very difficult conversations. Uh, and uh, which eventually I just realized, like, I've got to butt out of this and I've got to just let her run her business the way that she wants to run it. If she wants to ask me what I think, then I can come back and, and tell her, here's my advice and she can choose to take it or not. But I, I got to a realization where I was like, I'm trying to force my way of thinking about business onto her and she's not asking for it. So I need to sort of stop and, you know, let me, you know, it's going to be better for both of us <laughs> over the long run if my head is clear to focus on my business and her head is clear to focus on hers. And uh, anyway, so that was a bit of a learning experience that I had and, and something that taught me a lot about, I guess, in a relationship, listening to your partner and what they're asking for you and maybe what they're not asking from you. <laughs> What I found really intriguing about our conversation was it seemed that in me being so vulnerable with you in that conversation, it gave you a little bit more perspective on the difference in perception of finances and pricing. And what's really important to me with women in tech and all the work I do with women in tech is to be extremely inclusive of men because sometimes it's just that we don't understand. I mean, there's so many books written about this, but that we don't understand one another. And I think it's important for everyone to understand where everyone else is coming from so that we could all elevate together. And so I'm curious, Zach and Kay, Andrew didn't experience any price resistance. He was fine charging more, but because of his teammate, he decided to go with a lesser number. I'm curious, Zach or Kay and both of you, do you ever experience price resistance? Are you both consistently comfortable going after a higher number? 
I guess for me, it's twofold, right? Because I'm both a manager as well as we're running this Creator Now course where we're charging like a cohort price. I think I've experienced price sensitivity in, in all aspects of both on the cohort side and on clients on management commissions and fees. I think my thought process, especially as we kind of, I guess, to keep it consistent with like the cohort based stuff with Creator Now, my thought process has been that not everyone requires the same types of things. Like, for example, the same tennis racket that Serena Williams is using is probably not going to be the one that fits for me when I want to go start taking tennis lessons. But that doesn't mean that that tennis racket isn't worth that cost. It just means I have no business getting like involved in Serena Williams's racket. I shouldn't start there. And so I think what instead was really helpful for us is thinking about who the uh, ideal customer or target market would be and thinking about for uh, us what else is out there and and how much disposable income does that person have the person who is you know probably considering whether they should or should not go to university and really passionate about becoming a youtube creator well how does that person is that person sitting on thousands of dollars of disposable income that they can set towards that probably not and i think the other question was well how much money should they be able to afford for something if they're actually serious about that as a career pursuit. And so I think those are the questions that we were asking ourselves in order to find the sweet spot where we wanted someone that was serious enough about the pursuit of being a creator that they were willing to put up, you know, uh, $200, $250 to the program. But we also knew that we had a target market that just didn't, even if the course provided thousands and thousands of dollars of value, most of them just don't have that. And so value aside, we knew that we were speaking to a very price sensitive market and we had to accommodate one way or another. I actually might take it from a different uh, attack on in terms of like wages and salaries. And so before I became an internet person, I was working on Wall Street for many, many years. And I remember uh, when I was 31 years old, I was being considered for what's called managing director, which is like the highest title, not like the highest responsibility, but the highest title. And so I was like, it was a stretch. The average age was probably like 36, 37. So I was like five, six, seven years early. And I sat down and I wrote a 10 page presentation on myself and why it was in my manager's incentive to promote me to managing director and like made a full on case for myself. And I did that. And, and again, like, I think I actually did add the value, but at the same time, I was nowhere deserving, like track wise, uh, I hadn't paid my dues and I got it. And, and I observed this with like female friends and my wife and female colleagues. And they're like, I can't believe that you went in there five years early and made a 10 page presentation. Like, and it borderlines on like fake it till you make it. But there's also like this audacity to be like, I had like a little bit of a YOLO approach to it uh, while also believing that I deserved it. And then my female friends, many female friends and my wife would say like, I would not do that unless I was 100. You see, they, they were like, you are 80% qualified for that job. They're like, I wouldn't have done that if I was 120% qualified for that job. And it has always like that insight has, I, like, I just always remember that because like, again, like you said earlier, it's like neither one's like right or wrong per se, just in isolation, but it is like reflective of the broader dynamic of how we all need to consider that and like, and push people who are at the 120 to be like, yo, go do this or maybe rein yourself back in when you're like, I have no business going for this role. And it actually shows up a lot in my, in our marriage because my wife is more quiet and more introverted. And I'm like the guy who tries to take all the oxygen out of the room, like, uh, and tries to be the center of attention wherever we go. And I'll be paraphrasing something that she told me as like some like elaborate story I'm telling. She's like, you don't even know the topic. I told you everything you know about that topic. And so it's actually forced me in a good way to to like really actually elevate her and recognize her instead of just like what I was indirectly doing was just taking all the credit for something that she had taught me. And that dates back to that first story of like how the 120% versus the 80% qualification or self-perceived qualification level. And I don't think you should and necessarily, at least in advancing yourself, rein yourself back in. I think it's really respectful about giving your wife credit. But the other portion of your story about maybe I shouldn't just, you know, write the 10 page report if I'm not there yet. I actually think there's something extraordinarily beautiful about being a master of confidence. Andrew and I were talking about that 
because I wonder like where this stems from. Like, where does it start? Why do we think about, you know, financial self-worth and professional self-worth in such a different way? And Andrew and I were talking about maybe it goes all the way back to like hunters and gatherers and, you know, females taking care of the hut. And I don't know, like what needs to happen today for women as a culture to kind of become masters of confidence as well, to start writing the 10-page report? How do we all elevate? How do we need to see the world so that we could be writing those 10-page reports on ourselves too? I could say one thing that's wildly different, at least from me and a lot of the guys I know, is I'm very emotional. When I think about charging, I think about like how I want someone to feel I don't think about a lot of logical things. I think very emotionally. I notice a lot of my peers, guys, they're just going to growth hack to see how much somebody will spend and get the most out of somebody. And there's something like very cringy to me about that. I'm like, why are you trying to take advantage of people? Like, (laughs) you know, what do I need to understand about, you know, how is it not cringy? Like, how do I and we need to think differently? I don't want to tell you how to think, but yeah. I can tell you how I think if that's yes. useful. <laughs> I just <laughs> very, I wouldn't pretend to know what is going to work for somebody else. But, you know, I, I think there's there's one big thing that just goes on for men, which is like we're sort of valued in this way. Right. And so it's almost a shame for us if we don't treat situations like this, like we are we're kind of coming from a perspective of like. It's my job to maximize. It's my job to provide. It's my job to, you know, succeed at this uh, financially, specifically to sort of like, in, in such a way, I think that sometimes it even gets like pretty toxic where there's no limit. There's no any sense of enough. There's no sky. There's no ceiling to like how hard you will continue to push to just raise that digit, you know, one more zero, one more zero. Another thing that, you know, maybe is a really different perspective. I don't want to go too out on a limb here. I've been in the crypto world and, but it's sort of like, you know, money, it doesn't actually have anything to do with you or your self-worth at all. And it's not a real thing. Like we think it's real, but it's just sort of a representation of like the transfer of value and it doesn't do a perfect job at representing it. And so I think what, what perspective that I have is this is like a game there's not like a direct meaning tied to it. I got to a point where I, I realized like that at least the meaning that I attach to it, which is subjective, but the meaning that I attach to it is just choice and freedom. So like if I have more money in the future, I can just choose to do things differently. I don't have to go do a job I don't like. I can, you know, send my kids where I want to send them to school. I can, you know, live in the place that I want to live. And that's a big reason that sort of like drives me to sort of see that that's something that I want. But I've gotten to these wonderful <laughs> discussions over brunch of just like, you know, money is just a fantasy. You know, it's, it's like a, it's a shared delusion that, I mean, if you read Sapiens, which is a great book, it's like a, it's just a shared delusion that we all happen to agree is true. And uh, so it, when you look at it that way, it, it sort of divorces it or it gives you this incredible leeway to think about, you know, how do I want to price a service? How do I want to price a product? Um, what, and you're just looking at it, I, I totally, so to be totally honest, it just never even comes into my consciousness, like, how is somebody going to feel when they see what I'm charging for this? I hope that <laughs> the the course brings them success, but it never enters into my thought. Yeah, it just never enters my thought, what is going to be going on for this other person when they see this price on this page? It's so interesting. Zach, I'm curious, how did you end up having the perspective that you have? Were you raised that way? Did you teach it to yourself? Were you inspired by somebody? Is it just ingrained in you when you were born? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I've been thinking about it this whole time because I was raised by two really strong females. And I didn't really grow up with a male figure in my life until much later in my like teenage years. Both my older sister, who's 13 years older than me, and my mom are like not... I think the typical uh, generalization that we're giving of of like the female character in this, right? Both of them are extremely confident and very alpha energies. 
I think that rubbed off on me. And uh, my mom was very adamant on instilling self-confidence in me. I think probably a little bit too much where I have to be very cautious of of arrogance and being too confident and sometimes delusional in my own abilities. And so I've always grown up and been raised to think that I can achieve anything if anyone else is capable of the same thing. And I think that came from my mom. And I think from a you know financial thing, I think that was that was shown to me through uh, my mom instilling how important it was. And I think that came from growing up really poor. And like my family, my mom, my sister and I moved to Canada when I was four years old as refugees and we didn't start with a lot. And my entire life, the lesson of if you don't have money, this is what you're going to live like forever and go look at those people because they're living a lot better than us. And that's because they have money. And that was like the narrative of my upbringing was, can I get more and can I actually go out and achieve also, you know, I moved here from Iran when I was four years old, and I knew that the rest of my family never got that opportunity. I grew up with a sense of, holy shit, I have this chance. I have this like one opportunity that was given to me. And if I let this down and I don't leverage this into all the financial like opportunity that it is, then like I'm, I'm kind of like letting down this big thing that was handed to me with no doing of my own. So that's kind of the backstory for me and how I started to think this way. And I think I just walk around with a chip on my shoulder of like the opportunities and the the things that are around us and the people that are here in, in North America and the uh, privileges that we get uh, are something that I try not to take for granted ever. I love that. And it seems like your mom is pro- and sister are probably completely inspiring. And now I want to interview them too. <laughs> One thing that we come up against in our culture is if if a woman is strong and goes after it, then she falls into negative adjectives sometimes, you know, without saying negative adjectives here. But like, if a guy is really strong, that guy is like confident and secure and great. And then sometimes when a woman's really strong, it's like she's this or she's that and some a more negative connotation. And then the other one that sometimes women experience is uh, a combativeness, like there's not enough room for women, so they have to like step on one another. Now, I hope in our community here with the women in tech community that we're a whole community of collaborative people all looking to elevate one another. And that's at least the message that I'm putting out there, that there is enough for everybody. Do you know, and if you're comfortable sharing, if your mom had to deal with any of that or did she not? And if not... Tell us the wise words so like we could have a whole bunch of strong women out there not worried about it. Yeah. Honestly, I, I think more about my sister when, with that in mind because my sister wasn't able to pursue post-secondary education because of like financial circumstance and, and our legal like standing within the country because you can't get government loans as a refugee. And so she never pursued po- post-secondary education, but she ended up working up the ladder of banking and ended up getting pretty far up and... I think I was able to see firsthand how often I think people would label her as intense or aggressive. And I think that, you know, instead of if she was me, that would have been like, you know, confident and like, uh, you know, a stern business person. But I think, you know, I, I had to witness like a lot of people put those negative connotations and adjectives towards her just, I think, because they just weren't used to it. Honestly, I think if they were here, if if I were to like try to paraphrase an answer based on the lessons that they've passed to me is I don't think we can care what other people think about us. Like, I think it will only slow down the momentum. Um, and I think there's a level of this confidence that is just about being very comfortable in your skin. And I think people are going to hear people say something, no matter what uh, gender or sexual orientation or, or ethnicity you are, there's always going to be something. And obviously, I think some of us have it worse than others. But I think the more we put emphasis on listening to that voice, the more we give it power. I think the more we put our head down and say, this is what I can control. And I'm going to choose to put 100% of my emphasis on these things. And then recognizing the inconsistencies and the generalizations that come through our culture and doing the right things at the grassroots level in order to change those. Like, I think it's really important, you know, when I have a son and daughter, hopefully both, I want to be able to teach them the same way about some of these 
core principles and these philosophies of life. Whereas I think, unfortunately, a lot of people go through raising sons and daughters differently on what the optimized uh, result of their adulthood should be, whether that should be living a certain life so that they are an ideal partner for someone else, or whether they should be independently a badass person in and of themselves without deserving or like requiring anyone else to be a presence. And so I think those are the root things that we can all say, okay, well, where is it wrong and how do we change it for the next generation? But in an individual's life, I think the best thing you can do is probably just not care and just focus on what you can control and let everyone else just say what they want. I think that's the, like in the prisoner's dilemma, the most economically optimized output for an individual. Thank you. In negotiations, when you set a value, uh, whether it's negotiation for your salary or a business deal, how do you define your self-worth in those moments and when do you budge? When do you budge versus, nope, I'm walking? Are you able to to kind of respond to that? Andrew, you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. I mean, so... I had a, a, a co-founder once uh, who, when we were working on this consulting business and prior to having him involved, he was a salesman. He's an excellent, excellent salesman. And prior to doing this, you know, I would look for deals in like the two to maybe $8,000 range. And um, when I started working with him, he's like, we're not going to consider deals that are under the $10,000 range. And we're going to bill out at like $30,000 a month, which I thought was the craziest shit I've ever heard. I just did not think that that was going to work at all. And once though, you know, going through the process of seeing him sort of like assert that and like seeing it work really impacted me majorly because I'm like, here I am this idiot, like charging like two grand for a project or something. And there's these other projects out there. So I'm like wasting my time over here doing this work. And those clients, I can tell you, they're all worse clients. They're way harder. They're way more picky. They want way more from you. They expect a lot more. And the client that bills, you know, that you're billing out at 30 K a month for actually like wants less from you. They just want you to like, you know, help them generally make something good. Like it's really weird uh, how that dynamic works. And so, you know, when it sort of comes to, you know, specifically the question you're asking about, you know, negotiation, I say like shoot for the moon. I mean, just go crazy and like, uh, you know, say something that you think is probably oftentimes what you think is maybe far below what you think you can get uh, or what what you think you can get is far, far below what you might actually be able to get. Yeah. And obviously the other one, and I know this is, you know, probably obvious to many people, but it's just do a shitload of research, you know, find your, ask your friends, you know, in my case, you know, there's other CEOs in the network that I, that I can talk to. If you, you know, if you don't have that, try to find somebody who maybe has hired someone before or just get another perspective. There's pretty good stuff online these days where you can sort of see like, okay, in this particular area, if if we're talking about a salary negotiation, like what do people typically get paid? But my thinking would be like anchor high, ask for a lot. I think there's pretty good evidence that that works. Um, And don't, I know this is ridiculous to say, but like if your self-worth is getting tied into it, like just try as hard as you can to separate those things because what you get paid and what you're worth are not the same thing. Amen. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> uh, Zach. First of all, I love that answer. I think I think that's spot on to a lot of the stuff I was thinking as well. I think if I were to find something to add to it, I would say um, in a lot of the negotiations I tend to do, I try to just not name a number first. That's always worked for me. Uh, I know anchoring tends to work for a lot of people. I try to see uh, what the other person will offer first and gauge from that. And I think one of the things is also a lot of self-awareness on the opportunity or the the partnership or the deal in front of you and where that plays into like your personal or the business's long-term vision. So for example, like the negotiation you're going to do to become the uh, executive assistant of your role model when you're 18 years old is a lot different than the negotiation you're probably going to do later in your career when you really know your value and it's created. And so I think a lot of people tend to feel like the the principles are the exact same and you should go in and, you know, tell like me meeting a Scooter Braun when I'm 18 being like, hey, I'll work for you, but like 
you pay me the most in your company. And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I think we should just all like, uh, I, you know, you got to realize where in the conversation you are and where this plays into your game and your self-worth and the value that you're going to get from this opportunity being larger than just financial, right. From a lot of uh, knowledge and stuff like that. So uh, I think that's one of them. My, my advice uh, that I always like to preach is don't name a number, wait until they name a number and then double it. It works for any number. Um, and what you'll find out is whether that number was actually their number or whether that number was, uh, just a lowball offer. And either way, I think I always subscribe to the thought process that no one's ever going to throw away a deal because someone is negotiating for their worth. I think a lot of people are afraid of negotiating because they feel like if I just piss them off, they're going to choose another candidate. You have to go into these negotiations, especially as a salaried employee, that this company needs you more than you need it. There's a gazillion jobs out there, but there's not a lot of quality people. And so like, if you consider yourself a quality person and you think you are genuinely right for the job, well, then I think you need to know how hard that is to find. And this company has probably struck gold by being even able to interview you. And so I think don't be afraid to lose it in the process. I think the best emotion and philosophy a salesperson can have is the ability to know that they can walk away. Your ability to feel comfortable walking away from any deal will give you the confidence to not be held up in the conclusion of it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'm on to the next. And that energy just exudes off of you versus the energy of like, oh my God, this is my everything. And if I lose this, I'm worthless also exudes off of you and allows you to fall at the butt end of a lot of these deals and negotiations. Gosh, that's hard to it's hard to be the you know number three after the, those two pieces of advice. To, but to be honest, I, I haven't had a ton of experience with with direct negotiation. I might actually have a slightly different take on it. Where um, right out of the gates, I remind myself that what Andrew said is that my self worth is not in no way tied to anything that comes out of this conversation. Zero and zilch. Uh, I think that's one. And then and then once you can do that, you start to see where like is getting a five. Five percent more like ego or is it like because i want to make myself feel good or is it because it's going to move the needle for my company and so then you can actually like if you started in the right zip code then the plus five plus like you got to start in the right zip code but then the plus five plus ten minus five percent it, it actually doesn't matter. And oftentimes those are the deal killers or the self-doubt engines where like you didn't, they didn't value what they didn't value what I was, they didn't value what I was worth. But you're like, wait a minute, it was like 5% of this like big number or this right number plus all the other like long game incentives. So like once you can like separate that, you might actually take less money. And also like for me, like one of my business mantras is to follow the fun. And like if there's like friction in it, then right away it's giving me a vibe where I'm like, you know, if they're gonna if they're gonna fight on this and we're not even, you know, married yet, what's gonna happen when, you know, shit hits the fan and when things get tough? Meanwhile, if there's like, yeah, we're we are vibing and you know, they're not like nickel and diming here or they want just this little lower reason for this number for this reason that I can get behind, then the long term benefit of it is still like way better. So hit the right zip code and then the little machinations around it. You'll find that they often have to do with like round numbers, which by the way are also arbitrary, or they're just like these like little levers of self-perceived self-worth that you're like dialing up and down in real time and like emotionally going for the swing of it when they actually don't move the needle. Awesome. Thank you. Kay, I'm curious with your wife, if you're able to speak to this, I think it's fine for people to have a variety of personalities. And if your wife has a more quiet personality, what is her guy counterpart who also has a quiet personality doing to advance that she's not doing? Theoretically, like what can women who are quiet do to also advance without having to be louder? I mean, one thing that comes to mind, I think it's a little bit of a, of, of a, of a long-term strategy, so to speak, is like looking for pie-expanding opportunities. And so I think that, you know, Andrew had earlier talked about like, um, you know, there's not enough, this, you know, this, you can keep raising the bar uh, and des of desire, the hedonic treadmill, however you want. There is this like, there's these quiet kind of influential forces in companies, in communities where they just do their work, they elevate others, they promote others, they reach out, they're nurturing, and then they step, they step out of the way. And I think that 
it doesn't always work in the sense that it takes time for that to like flow through the, the system. But if you're at a system that recognizes that, whether it's a company, whether it's a community, people will right away point. They're like, the, the, the person who got the gift will say like, no, it's not me. This person championed me. Or the community or the colleagues are astute and self-aware enough to know that this person is like, you know, coaching them in, behind the scenes. So it is a little bit of an, an idealistic view in like, I, I, I personally tend to seek out abundant-based uh, environments where there's no like, if I take from you, you're taking from me, right? It's not like a, a one fixed pie. And then like when that truly works, it creates these like rip, you know, like the butterfly fly fluttering its wing, creating an earthquake or a tsunami somewhere else. Like when that actually happens, like it really happens. And like, like one place where I see that often is actually on Twitter, uh, where you see people like constantly championing other people and, you know, Twitter for the bad rap that it gets, there's like these amazing slices of it where it's just about elevating others, you know, irrespective of your, of your gender, your, your, your sexuality, your industry. And so, so I guess to, to that person, I would say, you know, like find those pockets of abundance and and show up like in a way that's authentic to yourself. There is an element uh, of trust, but if you are in that right kind of ecosystem, then the people who you are kind to and who you elevate will go out of their way to champion you. And to be perfectly honest, that's why I left Wall Street. I was like, this is not an ecosystem that is conducive to this type of thinking. I, I want out of it. I love what you're saying. I think championing people is just everything I do on a daily basis. So I, I love that that's your approach. One core influence in my life and the reason why I'm in technology is because of my father. And so it's extremely important to me that our women in tech community is inclusive of men because if it wasn't for my dad's direct influence and me playing video games, I mean, I built the first action sports social network because of my father's influence. He encouraged me to get into code and computers and everything. What can we do to empower guys to empower us back? Like there was this great tweet I did a couple weeks ago asking like, who are some unknown women in tech? They don't have any following. They've never been on a show. And who are they? Because I, I would love to celebrate them. So many guys messaged and said, oh, this girl's amazing. This woman's amazing, you know? And that was so cool to see. And sometimes I feel like that gets, it almost becomes male versus female. And I don't really like that. So what can we do to empower you to empower us? I mean, one thing that I've found really helpful is this is more on like a personal level, but if you're, you know, uh, your husband or partner, that's a person that you can directly talk to and you can help them understand like what it is that is really happening for you. Because I think a lot of times I've noticed like I don't really get it. An example would be like my wife trying to explain like what it's like to walk home alone in our like city neighborhood at night. And I'm like six one, you know, I'm not the biggest guy around, but I'm probably not the person that you're going to want to mess with like on the street. And so I just had no understanding of like what it's truly like to be female and small and like walking down the street alone at night. And that just the sort of ability of her to sort of like be vulnerable and explain that to me was really instructive about like what it is that she's going through. And I think the same can probably be said for at least that's a way that you can impact the person that's like immediately around you. You know, if you're looking to empower your husband or significant other, that's something that's been really helpful for me. I don't know if you guys have more better ideas. I would add, Esprit, that I think oftentimes there are men that want to have an impact, but they're so like scared of saying the wrong thing or being perceived in the wrong way. And you've created a space just through your energy and through your mission where like, I don't feel that way. Like I was just thinking like one of, one of the things I was thinking about is like, I have a, like a personal Rooney rule where, so the Rooney rule is like, if, if you're going to, it was for football, if you're going to, they were trying to get more black head coaches. And so if you were to interview a white head coach, you had to interview a black head coach interview. And that was a rule for all of hiring. And so I've created like a little Rooney rule for like networking. 
So like if I, someone's going to introduce me to a guy, they have to also like, I need to like pair that off with a woman or an underrepresented minority in my head. And like some people think that that's like weird and like manipulative and you're like, and, but again, you've created this space where I like, I don't feel uncomfortable saying that, even though I'm like, I'm like 95% sure that that's like an okay thing to say, but like 5% of the people might have an like some objection to what I just said. And so, but oftentimes when it comes to conversations on gender, when it comes to conversations of race, the fear of that 5% that might take what you're saying the wrong way or, or, or you might be wrong prevents you from doing anything, even though your heart wants to do something. And so the ability, and again, you've created that space and we've just met. So it, it I didn't feel that hesitation because of what you've created. And so whether it's in workplaces, whether it's among friends group, as it gets to conversation topics that get a little bit more, you know, culturally and socially dicier, the ability for the the kind of the leaders of that conversation of that group to give the, like, to let them know that it's okay to, to say that thing that they're not fully okay with is really, really powerful because then someone else will do it. And like will fall. It has a very compounding effect. I feel a lot of compassion for that because even in having the Women in Tech podcast and all the work I do in Women in Tech, one thing, quote unquote, controversial that I rarely say, but I'll say it right now because the context of the conversation is I don't feel that I'm a feminist. I feel I'm a champion of elevating women, but I don't feel that I'm this word, the feminist. I don't resonate. I I, I close to never say that because I feel like I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not, that's not acceptable. Or I think the closer that we can get to just being able to communicate our true heart and thoughts and also listen to one another and have compassion, I don't know, the world will be a better place. Zach, I'm so grateful that you shared about your mom and your sister. I think I'm so inspired. That was so cool. What's one thing that you think that we can do or that that your mom and sister did that could empower men to empower women because I want to create a place where men at the top feel comfortable and feel there's space to lift women up because right now there's a lot of lifting up of just which is natural psychologically of just people who look at look like me think like me etc and so I want to create like more opportunity for more women to be lifted yeah it's a tough question, but I think if I were to try to find an answer, it would be, I, I think in, including men in the conversation is is a really great start. And I don't, I think the, the too far version of it is like, I don't think women need to ask men for like help, right? It's more just making sure they're involved because I think we actually are the ones that need a lot of learning. I think a lot of men out there just lack education and, and they lack the awareness. And it's, I think, largely because sometimes we're left out of the conversation and under the generalization that like we may think a certain way. And to a lot of like the unfortunate consequences of cancel culture, we're afraid to seem ignorant and we're afraid to ask questions. And I think because that initiative is really hard for us to do, I think being involved in the conversation allows us to have nuanced conversation uh that isn't so black and white but we can get into the meat of things and so i think just including us is helpful i think if i were to put on my like uh think in my head of like what my mom would say she'd probably just say like stop asking for help you know what i mean like i think we've gone through decades i think this is like you know largely the thing is like underrepresented uh ethnicities and and uh communities and and women have been put on the side for decades and decades and the entirety of civilization. Like, I think it's done with asking the polite way and, and asking the easy way. I think it's time where people really start to like run out of patience with this stuff. We should just largely as a society make it okay for people to do something wrong. The previous point of like the, the whole effects of cancel culture, like you can't say the wrong thing. So then you're terrified to shit. And if we can't allow people to do the wrong thing and say the wrong phrasing of a thing and then realize like, oh, shit, I can't say that. Oh, that, you know, that's not accepted. Oh, I should phrase it differently. OK, cool. Got it. Learning lesson. I'm going to evolve and grow as an individual. But if we just automatically say, screw that person, that person sucks now. We're never talking about that person again. And that person's entire career should get destroyed. Um, I think we're going to create everyone to just huddle into like a groundhog's nest and never explain their true thoughts. 
And what we're going to change is the perception that everyone thinks and feels the same way or thinks and feels the way that we deem correct. But really what we're going to do is we're just going to hide the ugly. And I think what we need to do is make the ugly okay, because I think like we all have a lot of ugly to address and a lot of learning to do. Um, and I think making that an open conversation uh, is a very important factor in all this, getting better. Thank you so much. All right, last question. What is the best piece of advice each of you have gotten in your business careers that have helped accelerate you forward? Kay, you wanna go first? Two come to mind. The first is that you will always hear about the you know, the CEO or the, the, the kind of important person at a company and they would always say this person would speak to the cleaning staff the, way, the same way they would speak to the chairman of the board. And it actually ties with, um, with a quote uh, from, from the kind of spiritual teacher, Tara Brock, uh, which is um, her definition of, one of her definitions of love is the fullness of presence. And so like when I'm with you, like when I'm with you, Esprit, Zach, uh, uh, Andrew, I am 110% with you and nobody else. Uh, and when I'm with my family, I'm that way. When I'm with my direct reports, I'm that way. When I'm, when I'm with investors, I'm that way. And so uh, it is kind of this like fundamental like baseline of human respect and presence. I would actually tie that to kind of another piece of advice that someone had once gave me when I was a young manager. And they said like, you have to care for your direct reports like they're your kids. Uh, because you have such a disproportionate impact on their future, their thoughts, uh, their actions, uh, that you have to care for them with that amount of, you know, attention, uh, and love. And, and it's, it's something that I, I think about all the time. I like managing others. I like being a manager. So in that regards, I have like lots and lots of kids. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, how about you? So in my very first job that I ever had, I was working in the purchasing department at a uh, pharmaceutical company, which if you know anything about my personality is absolutely like the worst fit for a job that you could ever have. And I had these two managers that kind of just let me do, you know, kind of just be mediocre, honestly, you know, and I couldn't believe the stuff that I would get away with there. And I had this, this third manager and I had been, and I'd been working on some project or something and, you know, he called me into his office for my review and he gave me this whole review. You know, it was kind of harsh, you know, it was like, a, it was a little bit harsh. And he sort of said, you know, if, um, you know, if this was this person or that person, like I might not actually be so critical of them, but like, I know that you can do like a better job than this. And he said, like, is this who you want to be? And I started weeping uncontrollably, <laughs> you know, and so I think in the, that was like one of the best pieces of business advice I ever got because it made me kind of think, you know, it kind of kicked me in the ass and it just sort of said like, well, who do you want to be? Is this what you want for yourself? Like, do you want to live this like life where you're sort of, you know, I don't think he meant it this way, but over time I, I kind of came to see like, why am I in this job? I don't want this job. There must be something that I do want. And it was hard to find. But once I started finding something that rather than you know, trying to run away from that job, having something that I wanted to run towards, which was this iPhone app that I eventually made, this Goofy Razor, gave me something that just like pulled me forward. And and that's like a thread of interest that I've been following ever since. So I guess, is this who you want to be is probably the best piece of advice I ever got. I love that. Zach, how about you? Honestly, it's really cliche, but I, I think about this the older I get where I think someone when I was really young said like the best thing a business person needs is a really good accountant and a really good lawyer. And when I was like 18, I was like, what? Why? Why are those things so important? I don't get it. And I think as I've grown older, I've realized like those are two areas you want to be really sound. And that was really good advice. I think another one that I always think about, especially a lot recently, is don't rest in the middle, rest in the end. I think a lot of us tend to uh, celebrate or rest in the middle um, and uh, celebrate first downs like they're touchdowns. And I try to always remind myself that you can celebrate when it's a touchdown, but don't, don't get too excited about the first down um, or else you'll potentially get distracted and never get to the touchdown itself. Um, and I think that's been great advice. I try to remind myself of constantly. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. This conversation has been so important to me. This conversation has been so important to me because I think it is absolutely essential that we are an inclusive community of all genders, all races, all ethnicities, because that is how we will all elevate as a society together. The greatest sign of success is inner peace. And the way we could get to inner peace is by acting as a collective society and making sure we are looking out for our human neighbors. So thank you so much, you guys, for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. To connect and collaborate with incredible women in tech around the world, go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Andrew Nalband, founder and CEO of Thunk. We help creators create and publish more. We're based in Boston, Massachusetts, and you're listening to the Women in Tech Show. Hi, my name is Zach Honavar. I'm the founder of One Day Entertainment, a management company that helps content creators build their content empires. I'm based out of Santa Monica in California, and you're listening to the Women in Tech Show. Hi, this is Kay He. I'm the creator of Rad Reads, where I help people live an examined and productive life. I'm based in Manhattan Beach, California, and you're listening to the Women in Tech Show. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.